I'm a fourth generation Nashvilleian. My grandchildren are sixth generation. Uh, my family were immigrants from uh, just right outside of Ukraine uh, in the late 1800s. Um, not unlike a lot of the people leaving today, they were escaping persecution and seeking opportunity. This was when uh, Russia was uh, requiring many of the Jewish people to live under a life different than what they knew. Kind of the fiddler on the roof story. Those are my people. Whereas other families uh, from the Jewish community in Europe, in Germany and France, were educated people. They had gone to college, doctors, lawyers. Uh, my family were more like Tevye and fiddler on the roof. I have over 300 relatives in Nashville. Uh, they all came through uh, Ellis Island and got here and decided agriculture really wasn't for them anymore and they got into business. From the Chase studio at the Nashville Entrepreneur Center, this is Circle Back, where we trace the life cycle of the startup from bright idea to big payoff. I'm your host, Clark Buckner, and this is the story of Mike Schmerling. Hello, my name is Mike Schmerling. I'm the founder or co-founder of Transcore America, Corrections Partners, Background America, Amicus Legal Staffing, Cura Healthcare, Choice Food Group, Clearbrook Holdings, Chairman's Foods, Health Connect America, and XMI. I had an interest in business from a very young age, um, was kind of entrepreneurial, and I had a cousin here in Nashville um, was a fabulous guy, very well-known, called Joe Kraft. He was just great to kids. He was a good listener. And I always tried to figure out what it was he did. And he was a CPA and a lawyer and started the practice with his two brothers from scratch. And I said, well, that's what I'll do. That's a, he said, that's the best way to learn about business. If you become a certified public accountant, you're going to see a lot. You're going to learn a lot. Then you can figure out if you want to go into business someday. And it was the best advice I ever got. I was pretty much a rule follower, but I was that short kid that was no good in sports. Both of my brothers are six feet tall. One was an all-city basketball player, and the other one was, a, you know, great athletes. But um, I was never involved in a lot of athletics. I was uh, um, interested in, I always had a job in high school, the whole time, right through high school, loved to work. And I started a vending business when I was about 11. And uh, when I graduated from high school, I had about 25 machines in different recording studios and offices around town. And uh, until I could get a driver's license, my grandfather Harry Zeitlin drove me around, and we filled machines, and it was just a great experience. And I sold my business when I was uh, 17 and a half before I went to college. Went to the University of Oklahoma, and one of the reasons I went there was one of the few schools in the country. The profession was changing faster than the academic world, which means they were putting rules to take the CPA exam. It was one of the first schools in the country that offered a Bachelor of Accountancy degree. Everywhere else it was Bachelor of Science, traditional business degree with a major this, my degree says Bachelor of Accountancy. And the reason that's important is because at that time, you could go and get a major in accounting somewhere and not have enough credits to take the CPA exam in that particular state. So this was a, a degree that allowed you to take the CPA exam in almost any state in the country with enough credits post-graduation. I passed the CPA exam in 1977. I was 21 when I uh, finished that and um, started at Ernst & Young in June 1st of 1977. Well, one of the things I loved about the corporate experience of Ernst & Young is that they had policies and practices and um, 
training programs that were off the chart great. And just as cousin Joe Kraft had told him, he was learning a lot about business. It allowed you to see a lot of different kinds of industries, different businesses. I worked that summer of 77, I worked on the Opryland audit and the new hotel opened that year. So I was on doing the food and beverage. I something you couldn't screw up. So they gave that to me. Learned a lot about catering and hotel business. Next thing you know, you're working on a, a, a trucking company that transports oil, fleet transport. You're working on um, some healthcare companies. I worked on one of the com- healthcare companies that HCA later bought. So you got a lot of experience working with different people, smart people. That informed me well to understand the protocols of, of the business, how to manage a practice, and um, it was a great experience. If you looked at my reviews, which I kept, so every job you finish, you don't get an annual review, you get a review after every job, maybe five jobs a year you work on, depending on the, the term, and I saved them. I've got them for 40, 45 years. They dated 1977, 78, 79, and I left in 80, so it was uh, uh, during that period of time, and my reviews were very good. They were always careful to tell you where you can improve, but I wasn't offended ever by a, a negative review or a comment that you can do better here and there, and uh, I used it as a learning experience. Looking back, there would be some interesting instances of deja vu. One of my first jobs was an inventory observation for the Shoney's Commissary, actually where they kept all their frozen foods. And it was at a place on Charlotte, not there anymore, called Polar Cold Storage. And so you'd get in there and you'd go count fish all day, or you'd count steaks or whatever it was they had in there, and it was freezing cold, and it was a good experience. I had no idea that uh, approximately 30 years later, I'd owned the plant. We bought the Shoney's Commissary out of bankruptcy. Mike would later branch out to his own practice, half-tax, half-accounting, and consulting. We had three kids at the time, and I'm in my mid to late 30s, and I decided I really didn't want to do this the rest of my life. Uh, There is some redundancy to accounting. It got to a place where, I've used this quote before, but it's it's a true statement. The next time the uh, client came in and asked me whether uh, they should buy a car or lease a car, I answered the question appropriately and then decided, you know, I've got to find something else more exciting to do. And I had a lot of ideas about privatization, which were my first two companies that I started, and about how maybe the private sector could do some things better than government could do, more efficiently, quicker, less expensively. And so I decided to leave and and, um, sell my practice to my partners and start, you got three kids under 13, what better chance to get out and go do something and, and take a lot of risk before you're too old to do so. Mike's first bright idea was a unique delivery service. Yeah, a little bit like FedEx. In fact, people would joke with it, they call it Felony Express instead of FedEx, you know. I actually had an idea in privatization way before I left the practice of public accounting. It was 1990, and a group in Nashville had pioneered the notion of private for-profit prisons. It was very soon after CCA had started, and they really were beginning to gain ground. And I said, there's room for another company in a completely different business. 
And that business was transportation of inmates, not housing inmates, but moving them from place to place. The business is very simple. Somebody commits a crime in Maine, robs a bank or assaults somebody, and they disappear. And so the old method was the two deputy sheriffs on would leave by a one-way ticket where they think the person is, and they'd arrest him. Maybe he's being held in a Georgia jail for running a red light, and they find out there's a warrant outstanding, and they say, come get him. you got 48 hours under Georgia law. They'd go down, they'd pick him up, and they'd drive back. That trip might cost $5,000 for them to leave. And while they're gone, two deputies take that beat to cover the city while they're gone. It's very expensive. Enter Transcore America. Um, Our client is a client that has a pickup. Somebody they're looking for or need to talk to or arrest was being held in another jurisdiction. Sometimes it would be 100 miles away. Sometimes it would be 1,000 miles away. Sometimes it would be Hawaii. We were all land-based. We had no airplanes or anything. And then we would pick them up aggregate them at one place, and then we had buses that went north, south, east, west, and vans that picked them up. We had a national contract for transportation with Ryder. We'd use Ryder uh, customized with a kind of a cage system in the back, and that was the business. And uh, we were moving, by the time CCA discovered us, um, we were moving probably um, eight, 10,000 people a year for government agencies for six and $700 instead of the 5,000 it cost. As Transcore got rolling, another business opportunity would emerge. If you don't pull up to a Holiday Inn and say, hi, we need room for 10 inmates, you have to go to a secure facility. So we would make contracts with various facilities within our routes, and um, they needed extra money in their budget. So we'd pay $8, $10, $12, $15 a day until overcrowding came. And that was our nemesis. And so we could not find housing, so we built housing. And that's how we morphed into our second business, which was a pure competitor to CCA and uh, winning contracts for facilities in small towns. We knew that we could use 50 to 100 beds in any of the facilities we built. So we started out with a base of business for the transportation company. So you fast forward, we had two businesses, one prisoner transportation, and the second business was called Correction Partners. And um, we sold Transport America to CCA in December of 94. And we sold Corrections Partners to CCA. It was August the 19th of uh, 95, because I turned 40 the next day. And then Monday morning, already had an idea for a great new company called Backward America. We learned a lot about um, felons and criminal history and parole and recidivism and all the things that were associated with the uh, let's just say our clients in the vehicles. And the IT world had started to mature. So we had databases for the first time. It was the first company to really use the internet completely for ordering and delivering background checks. We signed a contract with Dollar General stores back when they had five or 6,000 stores, not 18,000. And we convinced them that you got to know who these people are. I mean, they're in a rural area. There's nobody looking over their shoulder. There's less, their absentee management You've got to do it on some of these senior people. And uh, they agreed it was a relatively easy thing to do. And so we signed up Dollar General, and we used fax machines. And there were times where all fax machines were moving at all times of the day, where all over the country they were hiring people, especially at the outset, where they had background checks on no one. It wasn't long before background checks were required. First in healthcare. 
So they wanted to make sure that the person really did go to, um, you know, Tulane University School of Medicine if you're going to operate on people. And um, you really are a pharmacist if you're going to be going to give you access to all the drugs we have at the uh, at the CVS store here. A doctor had to had to be credentialed. You want to make sure you're a doctor. And sophisticated businesses like Motorola, we did work for them, and they want to make sure. Okay, we want you. you where'd you get your engineering degree? And they would call the school, and you'd get your transcripts, or you'd get this, and we want to see the diploma. And they'd do some checking. So it was always some. We called it reference checking. Is what people did, and it was verbal. But then when documents became easily accessible, um, there was a more formal approach to it. And then regulations came in. Um, the government would want to make sure that uh, pilots at American Airlines had a legitimate license. And there weren't a lot of competitors. The competitors that we identified with were the credit check agencies like uh, TRW and Equifax and those types. But the intersection of people with credit and people with criminal history are not good intersections. Uh, we did the credentialing. Did you go to this school? Did you get this degree? Were you honorably discharged from the military? Yes or no? And that's the kind of thing we did. When we got into international, it was almost all verbal. So we, very creative, it, I wish I could take credit for it, but we did a search around the world to try to find the place where the greatest linguists for the least price was available. That was our criteria. And we ended up opening an office in Katowice, Poland, because Outside of Poland, very few people speak that language. So everyone there speaks two languages, three languages, five languages. They got to speak French, they got to speak German, some speak Japanese, some speak Russian. So we opened an office there, and we would, and it was the cost of doing business was no, we had a PhD in linguistics for back then $10,000, $12,000 a year. So we had a big office, and they would call. They would call into, into Asia, they'd call into South America, and they would try to get information over the phone. They take notes, and those notes created a background check, and this is all that was available. The one thing I had learned from public accounting, really post Ernst & Young, um, was the businesses that succeed do the same things right, and the ones that fail do the same things wrong. And I knew that across various industries, and you get to a place in a professional career where your gut instincts about that are really good, and you, you know how to make it succeed, maybe better than you know how to prevent it from failing. So it's like being the house at the casino in terms of being able to build something from scratch, having controls and internal controls and procedures and the right people in the right place and having people who fill your voids. We as humans like to be comrades with people like us. Groucho Marx once said, any country club that would have me as a member um, I'd never want to join. Uh, it, we want to have people like us. And what you need is diversity. Diversity of thought, diversity of experience, diversity of skill. That is what makes it successful. So someone that will challenge me. I knew I didn't know anything about prisons. I never pretended to. Or prisoner transportation. Or technology. That was a, you know, understanding that. So we tried to find people who could complement the skill set that we had. The best test of Mike's business instincts were the sales of his companies. They're all built to ultimately sell so that you get the excitement of doing something different and having a, another experience. But we didn't have, know who to sell it to. And Kroll approached us. They found us. I had never heard of the company. Uh, they were, at the time, one of the largest private investigation firms in the world. Uh, one of their big businesses was 
uh, a kidnap and ransom business that they did with AIG. So if executives get kidnapped in Brazil looking at coffee beans or in Nigeria looking at oil fields, if you're Exxon, if somebody gets kidnapped, we have a policy that does recovery, does covers any, any uh, ransom paid. They actually made a movie about that kidnap and ransom business. It's called Proof of Life with Meg Ryan. You may have seen it. They were not going to buy it unless I stayed and my whole team stayed. And so the first year I ran the business they bought, Background America. The second year I ran a division of Kroll that had Background America in it and four other acquisitions that they had acquired. They were trying to integrate. One was a surveillance company that did private investigation surveillance. One was a drug testing lab in Louisiana. One was very interesting called OnTrack. It was a electronic, the first electronic evidence discovery firm. Lawyers were using it to try to get emails. And then the third year in 2001, I became chief operating officer of Kroll, executive vice president, COO, and joined the board of Kroll. That meant commuting from Nashville to New York. And there was another tough struggle. When I sold uh, Background America to Kroll for stock, um, the stock was maybe at $28 a share. And then on the month I became chief operating officer, the stock had probably fallen to $4 a share. So we'd lost 90% of the price which was one of the motivations, why do you go to work there? Because I have an investment there. I was a large individual shareholder. Now I was on the board and on the audit committee of the board. So I really got to look at the broader picture as the COO. We decided if you've got to be in it because your brand is so tied to that business, that's okay to do. But you build around it other businesses that are far more profitable. Those deep family roots in Nashville translate into real estate investment. I was born on Church Street. Um, I'm much more the tortoise than the hare when it comes to investing. I thought that real estate was a wonderful diversification. I needed many of them for my businesses along the way, and they were, they were convenient. And I, if I sold it, I could get out of the lease real quick. That was a very important thing. At one time, I had about a million square feet of office. And um, I probably have, you know, a dozen properties in Midtown left. Mike saw both the potential and practical value of Nashville real estate earlier than most. I owned real estate down in Midtown here, and we kept taking floors of my, uh, my various buildings. And I, so I'd get another building on very inexpensively, and so I ended up with a lot of property later in Midtown. My first acquisition was in the, in the mid-'90s. Um, I owned the Castronaut building downtown for about 25 years and bought a property across the street. It was one of the, on the National Historical Record. I was the sixth owner. James K. Polk's family was the second owner, President Polk. He always said, I'm going to be a one-term president. 1849, after the inauguration of his successor, he came back to Nashville, horse and buggy, and got sick en route and died on the property in summer of 1849. His funeral and his burial was on that property, and his wife, Sarah, lived 40 years, almost 50 years after that. She died in 1899, and they had a big problem with the estate, and it finally sold. They moved the tomb of he and his wife to the state capitol and tore the house down, tore down a presidential home back then. You know, it was amazing. And I bought it in 1996, I think, and it was an office building and a parking garage, and I really bought it because I needed the parking garage for both buildings, and never touched that. We honored the history of that site. Yes, 
family, and tradition matters to Mike Schmerling. He came to the rescue of a longtime Nashville family business. These weren't really startups, these were turnarounds. A, a banker called me and said, we have a, a, a business that's, that's troubled. And um, at, at this time, the family is fourth or fifth generation now and needs to sell. Bought Vietti Foods, been here since Giuseppe Vietti, started in the 1800s, a canning operation here. And that led us to buy several other small, all of them were in Nashville. We got all, all these businesses were Nashville based. I wasn't going to go to Wyoming and buy food companies. They got people there that can save those businesses. And we got into a few other things, like a salad dressing company that used to be Mike Rose Foods. That was maybe one of the second ones we bought. It was a troubled business. It had actually sold a few times along the way. Shoney's owned it. They used it for their salad dressings for their salad bars. They sold it. The company they sold it to sold it. And it ended up with Heinz. And it was a billion-dollar business. They had six plants across the country. And this plant was the smallest of the six. And they announced they're closing it. They closed it. And we're going to mothball it and fill out what to do later. They're going to close it in 30 days. I saw it in the Tennessean, called my partner. We, we called and found out about it, and they got in touch with Heinz. So actually, Phil Bredesen helped us. Somebody in his office helped us. They called the governor of Pennsylvania, and they said, why are you going to lay off 200 people and close this plant and mothball it? They want to do something completely different. They'll have a non-compete, but we need these jobs in Nashville. And the next thing we know, we're in discussions with Heinz, and we bought it for a great price, land, building, equipment, and we had to change it. We never made salad dressing there. We made... Uh, something else, oils and uh, condiments of other kinds, and came up with formulations, and they found clients. They said, we, tell us what you need, and we'll make that for you. All of them had land plays. In every case, the land was the hedge in the building. And uh, I like that part of it. One of the greatest opportunities I ever was presented, and I, that was luck that it got to me, but um, a fabulous, brilliant woman who was a divisional head of a public company had ideas of her own and couldn't find um, men to listen to her. Talked to one of the board members that tried to talk her out of it and said, no, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm going go to go find something else. What are you going to do? And he said, well, go talk to Mike Schmerling. He loves these kind of crazy things. And it was a healthcare business, one of the very first ones I ever got involved in. She came and saw me. I took the appointment and... 15 minutes into the meeting, I, I said, I don't really understand this healthcare concept, but I'm going to invest in her, whatever it is. And what she knew is that health insurance in the United States was changing. And pretty soon, if not now, very soon, health insurance companies would start paying for behavioral health, period. So whether it's a kid with um, eating disorder or a delinquency or kids at risk, whatever it was, Insurance companies had figured out if this kid ends up in a psychiatric hospital or a juvenile facility, the cost is huge compared to the $50, $60, $70 an hour she charges for counseling. And um, we started it, we built it, and we sold it to a private equity. And it was the single biggest transaction. It's not no media on this one. It's called Health Connect America. Just absolutely grew and became a $10, $15 million business within three or four years. They're not all successes. Let's let's be clear. You know, anybody that says, you know, everything I touch turns to gold is is drinking Kool-Aid from, you know, some cult. I don't know. But 
They're not all successful. But the, the secret to me has always been just to mitigate risk, create a hedge with real estate, the same things I'm, I'm saying. You know, I think the thing about my career that um, when I look back on that's the most uh, meaningful um, is the discovery of the difference between success and purpose. In many ways, that discovery grew from a difficult diagnosis. My dad practiced medicine in Nashville uh, for over 40 years, and uh, six months after his retirement, he was diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's disease. And um, I don't come from a background of healthcare. Had never been in an assisted living facility, never been in a nursing home, and decided to get involved in his care. My siblings all lived out of town at the time, and so I visited different facilities. My mother had taken care of him for four and a half years, and it was time to find some residential program. And I was just shocked at the conditions of these places. Where people sit in front of a TV asleep all day, and there's no activities, there's no programming. And in the beginning, it was just a learning exercise. And I got obsessed with this. And there are some great programs, there are some great facilities, but no facility in the country Tell me what is the Mayo Clinic, the, the MD Anderson, the Betty Ford Center of Alzheimer's. And they couldn't tell me. So I started taking note of some of the greatest programs and, and decided to create a facility here in Nashville. What better place for a healthcare facility like this, which has as its sole purpose creating a center of excellence, a best practices dedicated facility. So when you're thinking about building something in Montana or Wyoming, you go, Okay, let's go see where's the best one, and that would come to mind, and that would be Abe's Garden. So we borrowed the best practices that we could find around the country and implemented them. We aggregated them and implemented them. Um, Storytelling program from Copper Ridge in Sykesville, Maryland, and a a pet program from Silver Silverado in Texas. It turns out it's about the Where to Go program and the grooming program and having trained service animals implementing these best programs that were out there, but nobody had as its mission putting them all in one place. Um, Independent, assisted living, and then Abe's Garden for memory care. My dad died in 2006, and I started this project in 2004. I knew it was never a place he would have it. He was too far into his disease. It's been very therapeutic for me, and it's a way for me to give back and pay forward, and um, someone's got to do things like this, and may as well have been me. All my three kids live here, and so that's important. I have five grandchildren, and I love that. They named me. Um, I'm grand happy. That's what they came up with, and they cut off the grand part because they couldn't say it. They just call me happy. You've been listening to Circle Back. To subscribe, visit ec.co slash circle back and follow, rate, and review the show anywhere you get your podcasts. Circle Back is made possible by the generous support of the Beth and Randy Chase family. Also, thank you to our media partner, Nashville Post. Keep your pulse on all things Nashville business and more by subscribing to their newsletter at nashvillepost.com. 
and a shout out to our friends at Lightning 100 for supporting the show. A big thanks to our team from our creator and executive producer, Greg Allen. Script writing by Demetria Kalidimos. And a big thank you to the rest of the EC staff. I'm Clark Buckner, and we'll see you soon on another episode of Circle Back. <laughs>